Presidings Podcast is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman applies electromagnetic maneuver warfare to seamlessly target and combat enemy threats across any domain. By leveraging traditional spectrum-based and next-generation innovations, they're giving your forces a decisive advantage. That's why they're a leader in transformative airborne EW. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com slash EW. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me here live from the Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut, is my co-host for today, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Bray. Hello, Bill. <laughs> Hello, yeah, Ward. Hello. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. And we have a very special edition episode of the podcast today. So without further ado, let's introduce our guest. It's my pleasure to introduce uh, Marine Corps General uh, John Kelly, also Director of the Department of Homeland Security and a White House Chief of Staff. Welcome, sir. Great to be here. General, let's start, let's start from the, uh, the beginning here. What attracted you to the Marine Corps? It's the best service. <laughs> what else, though? I was raised by a Marine. I was raised by the great Santini, actually. Right. I really was. Uh, so no, I get it. Yes, sir, I get it. But what specifically? Yeah. So you grew up in, in the greater Boston area. Yeah. What was it about? I grew, the, I grew the Marine up in Corps? Boston, very okay. working class, uh, Irish, mostly Catholic neighborhood. And um, Boston at the time was actually a, quite a Navy Marine Corps town. There was a large Navy base there. Uh, we had two or three aircraft carriers permanently assigned. Wasp was the first uh, aircraft carrier ever went on, the old Wasp. Um, we had uh, 1,400, 1,500 Marines there at the Marine Barracks to protect, to guard the Navy base because apparently the Navy sailors can't do it or something. I don't know why exactly, <laughs> but there, there it is, another one. Uh, no, but seriously, it was a Navy Marine Corps town, very naval. Uh, Coast Guard was there and, 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 you know, big contingent. And there was this thing called a draft back then. And I spent, uh, actually, I dropped out of college after about halfway through my freshman so year. So this was like 69, 68, 60, 69? Going into 69. Okay. I, yeah, I didn't really want to go to college. I wanted to go in, in, in the Marine Corps early on. A friend of mine uh, made his way into the U.S. Merchant Marine and wrote back and said, this is, I'm having the time of my life here. I'm getting pretty good money and it's, you know, port calls are pretty good. So uh, realized that I would eventually be drafted. I went in the Merchant Marine uh, for a year, essentially shipped out of the West Coast, went made a number of runs here, there, and everywhere. Came back from one of the, uh, uh, my last uh, trip in the Merchant Marine and uh, called home. My mother said, draft uh, notice is here. She opened it up, told me I'd missed my draft physical, but which isn't a big deal because they'd leave a number and I call them and I said, I'll come back to Boston. They say, oh, you can take the uh, physical out there in Seattle if you want. That's where I was. Anyways, went back home, took the physical, passed. And again, because of the nature of at least my neighborhood in Boston and all, um, went in the Marine Corps rather than the Army. Um, and what, while I'm on that, I mean, back then when I grew up, every man in our life was a veteran of World War II or, or Korea. Uh, my dad was in the Army during World War II in the Pacific. My, uh, uh, his, his baby brother was in the Navy uh, on submarine patrol and off, uh, I was stationed out of Boston, interesting enough, but going after Nazi U-boats. And uh, the middle guy, Leo, was a Marine, Iwo Jima. Uh, all of my uncles, of which there were so many, because my, my mother in particular, being Italian, had a large family. They were all veterans. Uh, and the, the family get-togethers and the sit-down and hear those guys banter back and forth and talk about their experiences and, 
you know, the Navy isn't as good as the Army and the, none of them are as good as the Marine. And those banterings, you know what I mean? It's just I really do know wonderful. Yes, and I have to mention the wives, too. I mean, the, the women were unbelievably strong. Uh, most of them didn't work. Most of them had very large families. I'm one of five, which was the smallest end, I think, of the family back then, uh, of, of the family. So that's how I ended up going in the Marine Corps. I never expected to stay one day longer than my two-year commitment. Like every Marine that goes to Paris. So did you go to, oh, you went to Paris Island? Yeah, I went okay. to Paris Island. But like every Marine that goes to Marine boot camp, the, when you are on that bus and get off and get on the yellow footprints, you realize you've probably made the biggest mistake of your life. <laughs> uh, and I was so wishing I'd gone in the Army at no. Um, but, um, but never expected to stay one day longer. But um, I just um, found the men that I, I was an infantryman, uh, Bravo Company, 1st Battalion, 6th Marines, and they were mostly uneducated guys, mostly working class, high Almost all of them were Vietnam vets, almost all of them multiple tours in Vietnam. And they were uh, rough around the edges, to say the least, but they were great guys. Um, so you did that for two – was that at Camp Lejeune? Is that where you were stationed? At Camp Lejeune. And then uh, during that period, my uh, company commander um, started uh, talking to me about being an officer. I made sergeant as an infantryman squad leader, and, and the company commander said started encouraging me to think about it and, and this kind of thing. And and eventually did, and, and uh, I was about to go into a formal a formal program, and uh, my father called me and told me my mother had terminal cancer, so that was in the summer of '72. So I uh, I went home, um, and um, but the day after Labor Day, I got home on Labor Day. The day after Labor Day, the Marine officer recruiter in Boston called me and said, "Hey, my friend, your company commander said you're home, and we need to get you to back in the Marine Corps." So I went into a program, uh, somewhat uh, PLC, a fairly you know, informal program. Did two summers and you know uh, went back in the Marine Corps again. Never really thinking I'd stay much past my four-year officer commitment, but the Marine Corps was getting better and better and better. And uh, you know, it's my lifestyle, and I always said I'll stay until they throw me out or until I'm not having fun anymore. And uh, you know, roughly 45 years. So if you had to pick three high points, because um, we want to talk about the other phases of, of your professional life as well as being in the Marine Corps, um, what what comes to mind? Is it command? Is it is Well, it, uh, certainly under- the first time I was referred to as United States Marine, that was, you know, after, you know the, when you graduate from boot camp is the first time you're a recruit and you're a scumbag to boot. Right. Um, until you until they call you Marine that first time. You get your global and, laurel, yeah. and that's a big deal. Big, big deal. Okay. Uh, and uh, so that was the number one time for sure. Being being um, When I made sergeant, for some reason, best rank I ever held and and the, certainly the most enjoyable rank. Captain was a close second, but uh, to be a, a Marine sergeant was huge. And then I'd have to say when I uh, – certainly every time I ever received – you know, w- w- Took a command was pretty high, but I, I would, I'd have to say being an LAR later Army Reconnaissance Battalion commander was pretty high. But but again, almost no, virtually every time you take command, so they're all different. But those, uh, but, but but I guess you know being called a Marine, making sergeant, and just I guess the other high point, and it was forty five years long almost, the opportunity to serve with the kind of men and women that are in general in our armed forces, and in particular in our Marine Corps. Uh, the finest men and women on the planet, um, and I loved it. 
So your career was punctuated by some some time uh, in the D.C. arena. You, you had some outer office mm-hmm. jobs and other things. Did you do that deliberately to sort of build your portfolio towards making general officer? Or was that just something that happened no, just, because you were it, 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 by name call? Or just how did ha- that happen? You know, it just happened. Um, I never called a monitor um, on my own. I, you know, the, the assignment officers, I'd only call them when they call me. Um, and, you know, who knows? You never know where you're going to go. But, I mean, I had some... Uh, unique in that I had some uh, some billets that really did prepare me very well to be a, a Marine senior officer. Um, I mean, in, in addition to all of the commands I had and all the leadership opportunities and the opportunities coming up uh, the ladder to watch really good senior Marine leaders and to study them and see how they did business and to, you know, to put what I liked about what they were doing into my kind of kit bag as, as leadership uh uh, techniques and procedures, but I I was um, um, at the National War College, and I got a call two days before graduation, and one of the the guy who answered the phone said, hey, it's uh, the Commandant of the Marine Corps is on the phone for you. I mean, you know, I'm a lieutenant colonel, right? He's on the phone for you and wants to talk to you. And I thought, you know, someone was kidding or something. So <laughs> I said, Colonel Kelly, Lieutenant Colonel Kelly, and it was Carl Mundy. It was him on the phone. And he said, hey, uh, and I didn't know him. He said, uh, "Hey, um, I'd like to uh, like you to consider going over and taking over from General John Sattler, United States Marine Corps, the Legislative Affairs uh, assignment in on, in the House of Representatives." And I said, uh, "Oof, I never even heard of it, you know." And I said, mm, and "I was on the way to the Joint Staff to get my joint check," um, and I said, uh, uh, "Can I think about it?" <laughs> uh, and he said, "Sure, call me back tomorrow," which was the day before graduation. And I called him back, and um, I said, sir, I'd, you know, I kind of considered it, and I'd just soon you know, go to the joint staff. And he said, well, good. I'm glad you thought about it. Uh, you report tomorrow to <laughs> legislative affairs. Um, and um, that was supposed to be two years. And, and, and actually, that Friday that I reported there was the turnover between General Mundy and General Krulak, who had never met before okay. in my life. I was supposed to be there for two years. Um, I was extended by General Krulak. We were, we were what, what were the fights back then? General Krulak told us, I, I, need to, um, I need to replace the 53 Echo. This is 1996, maybe. Okay. Got to receive, replace the Echo. Um, we got to uh, fix the, uh, the Cobras and the, and the Hueys. And it, at the time, it was a 4BN, 4BW program, and it morphed. And then it was, we have to replace the 46 with the V-22. Yeah. I'd never heard V-22 before in my life. This is 96. I worked I on that program yeah. from 02 to 05. 96, 97, yeah. something like that. And uh, there were a lot of other things. But the point is, he extended me. He said, John, I was selected for colonel, and then I was selected for command. And he said, hey, I'm, I'm going to break your heart. I have to keep you another year. So it was three years. So I didn't get the opportunity to get the regiment that year. And then the next year, I'm uh, picked to be a MU commander. And he said, I'm going to break your heart again. You're going to stay for a fourth year. It did break my heart. You were ledge affairs for four for years. For four years. Um, never took a day's leave. So remind me, this is the Clinton, Clinton, Clinton years? years okay. Yeah. But we were, and the Marine Corps was very good on the Hill, but we were uh, we were magic. Terry Paul on the Senate side, retired as a one-star. Me on the House side. John Sattler taught me so much working with the Commandant of the Marine Corps. We obviously were flying the V-22. We're about to fly the, the uh, replacement for the 53 Echo. Um, and... Um, yeah, the kilos of beast. I'm sorry, the other one. It wasn't the 4BN. That was coming. That was uh, it was uh, replacing all of our fixed wing aircraft with mm-hmm. the Joint Strike Fighter, and we didn't even know what that was at the time. 
So all of those things started back then, and a, and a million other things. We saved uh, we saved end strength for the Marine Corps, and it was all because we knew how to work the Hill. Okay. Now you can't lobby; it's against the law to lobby federal employees. Can't lobby, but we can inform and educate the hell out of them, and that's right. what we used to do. Um, but I was there for four years, and then selected again to command. And General Krulak said to me, uh, you're not going to go to command. You're going to go to a joint tour. And I was like, come on. <laughs> and he said, uh, he said, you can't be selected for general unless you are you have a joint check. Remember right. back when they yes, yes. And I said, sir, give me a break. Selection of general is like, you know, it's such a crap shot, crap shoot. Um, not so sure. I, know, I don't know anything about being a general, so I'm not so sure I want to be one. But for sure... The percentages are so small. And he said, yeah, but you won't be selected if you don't get a joint tour. So I went off to um, to uh, Moens, Belgium for two years. Okay. Get the joint check. Um, but what did that help me do? I understood how Capitol Hill works, how to make it work for you. Uh, and I don't mean to cross any lines, legal or otherwise, but I knew how it worked. I wasn't afraid of it. And I knew how to interact with them. And I, when we brought... When we brought Witnesses over, they were going to satisfy the questions that the Congress have, has a right to ask and have a, have a right to get answers to. So I understood that. And then later on, as a one-star, I took over legislative affairs for the Marine Corps in the Pentagon. So now I'm working House and Senate, um, which was invaluable, again, to be a more senior officer. And then I, when I went to uh, be General, uh, I mean, uh, Bob Gates, Secretary Gates, Secretary Panetta's senior military assistant, which is kind of like the chief of staff. It's not an aide job. It's kind of a chief of staff job. I'm now interacting with the White House, the Obama White House, a lot. Um, so now I'm starting to learn about the administration, the executive side of our government. So then when I went to Southcom, I understood Congress and how they work. I understood how the White House national security staff works. And it just made me uh, much more capable of telling the Southcom story during hearings that I was required to go to on the Hill, and at the same time interacting with the national security staff, uh, to include the president, in the White House. Um, so all of that added up to kind of a Ph.D. in U.S. government, but I never had anything to do with it. It just, it just kind of happened along the way. And, of course, all the other things like command and everything, that's the invaluable stuff as well. So before we get to your COCOM, Southcom, let's uh, get some reflections on Iraq. What, 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 what was that? in your mind uh, about in terms of the initial run-up? You know, you were in the western side of the country. What comes to mind when you think of the Iraq War? Yeah. I think I was a colonel, um, uh, Brigadier Select. Jim Mattis, uh, didn't really know him. I, I was his ADC at this point, assistant division commander. You had uh, Jim Conway, fantastic Marine, as the, as the MEF commander or the corps commander. Um, in the Army, it would be a corps, you know, multiple divisions below him. Uh, and as we deployed, not thinking we were going to go to war, but not this is right after 9-11, right? Uh, we started to deploy in 2000, late 2002, and, of course, we went into the attack mode in uh, March of 2003. But I can remember this was invaluable, again, to me as a, as a junior guy in, in the general officer ranks coming up because we had, as we were writing the plan of attack, and we had the U.S. Army 3rd uh, Division with us um, in the 5th Corps, I think, Great soldiers, to say the least, and we were interacting with them and the first UK United Kingdom division. But there were a million questions as we were writing the plan, um, designing the plan. 
uh, we had a lot of questions. Uh, you know, we designed a plan, believe it or not, to do minimum damage to the country because we, our sense was, and we were telling the troops, we're here to liberate these people, not to conquer them. Um, so we're not going to blow up the power plant. We might blow up the, uh, the wire, you know, system right outside the power plant that can be re, re, restrung in a week, but we're not going to blow up the power plant. And we also worked to minimize the number of Iraqis automatically, you know, civilians that you would hurt or kill, but also their army. Because if you come in here to liberate them and you know that the average person in the Iraqi army is there because he has to be there, and you want to minimize the misery that you put Iraqi parents through by killing their kids and the post, um, post period would, would go better for us if we didn't have a lot of people hating us because we killed this, their kids. But we had questions, probably the biggest one, you know, what after we're going to take Baghdad, you know, as I said to a reporter, you know, we, you know, we, we took Guadalcanal, we took Iwo Jima, you know, Baghdad ain't shit. And it wasn't, you <laughs> know, right. um, we knew we were going to win, but we kept saying, but what happens after we win the militarily? Who's going to take over the, the place? And we just kept getting told by the Pentagon, stop asking State Department, someone's going to do it, the military's not going to do it, we're going to come home. But if we'd have known what was going to happen, which I don't think anyone knew at the time, um, we'd have known, we'd have probably done things a little differently in terms of the planning and all this. But long story short, um, there was no plan. We kept asking and then we were told to shut up in color. And remember the night we crossed into the, into Iraq through the berm and the, you know, the aircraft were flying overhead and cruise missiles were everywhere and, and all of our guns were firing into Iraq. And my driver, Dave Harden, Lance Corporal, United States Marine Corps from uh, Dallas, Texas said to me, you know, after he spit a huge amount <laughs> of tobacco out of his, I, th- I think he spit it on my leg. Um, <laughs> He said, sir, you know, spit, who's going to take over this place? He had a lot of F-bombs and everything I won't go into, but who's going to take over after this place? What's going to happen? And I honestly said to him, let's go Harden. We have, we're the greatest country on the earth, and we have the greatest military in the world. We're going to win this thing. We're going to take some losses, but we're going to win this thing. Uh, and we're so smart that there are people back in Washington right now that are, are answering that question. They're putting, you know, something in place so that when we take Baghdad, we take the Crete, we finish this thing, they will fall in and rebuild the uh, the country that you know that needs to be rebuilt, and they will come in and establish a uh, interim government until the Iraqis can. Uh, and he reminded me a number of times a year or so later that, sir, remember you told me that we're the smartest people and we really know what we're doing. Uh, you were right on the U.S. military is going to take Baghdad. Uh, but you really missed it on the the rest of it, you know. And, and uh, my belief is because we didn't have a good plan and we were cobbling it together after the Baghdad fell, um, that um, the violence that, that didn't have to happen began to happen and then got out of hand. And the people got impatient about what was going on and we had that insurgency grow and grow and grow and grow. Um, my belief is had we had something in place that we could fly right in or just the military take it for a while. But we, if we'd have had a plan, which we didn't have a plan, um, I don't think it would ever have gotten out of hand like it did. So when the military is told to shut up in color, um, what's the cautionary tale there? Let's say that some major is listening now who will be in your position 10 years from now. 
what would you say? Have, have a, a, a plan anyway? I mean, how, how can you guard against well, that? Well, uh, you know, do what Jim Conway and, and Mattis and people like that did. They never shut up until we crossed the line of departure. You know, and uh, it's my understanding that from friends of mine that were on the national security staff, it was driving them crazy because we kept asking. And, you know, not just one MEF, but everybody just kept asking over and over. And and I got to blame a little bit the uh, the combatant commander because he was of the same opinion. We're not going to take, you know, we're not going to do nation building once we take Baghdad, we're out of here. Okay, fine. That's a, that's a plan. So what is coming next? And I think the senior headquarters should have been looking at, well, wait a minute, White House or Pentagon. There is no plan. You keep t- saying someone else is going to do it. Who's the someone else? I want to talk to them. I want to at least start to design the handoff between military operations and in the, in the civil operations. And I think they dropped the ball. Um, again, you know, this is a team effort. And if, if the uh, people that are, I mean, the president has a right to make every, any decision he wants, so long as it's legal, moral, ethical. Um, but if we're not helping him make the right decision, um, and I got to think in my heart of hearts that as much as Don Rumsfeld, Mr. Rumsfeld did not want us, the U.S. military, to get bogged down in nation building, if it's the only option uh, or the only alternative to an insurgency that grew out of hand, you know, got out of control for a while, then I say we stay and do it. We don't, we don't like to do it, but I say we stay and do it. Uh, but as Mr. Uh, uh, Colin Powell said, uh, Secretary Colin Powell, you, you break it, you own it. We broke it. Right. And we didn't take ownership. Let's pivot to Southcom. Um, what did you learn, particularly about that hemisphere and that region that maybe informed your approaches to the yeah. the, the domestic problems later. The the unique thing about the Southcom, um, you know, Americans, whether they're most Americans in general, but certainly our government, we we don't tend to look south. We ought to because that's that's where our friends are, that's where our neighbors are. And I didn't really know that until I got to Southcom. We tend to look east and west, right? Indo Pacific, European Command. Uh, there's and, no, and so was your office in Panama or where, where Ma- were you physically? Mi- Miami. Oh, in Miami, okay. Which, without without making too much of a joke, is uh, the largest, closest Latin American city to the United States. I mean, it's very, very Latin American down there in, in, in the huge numbers, not just Cubans, but a lot of people. And the the uh, Latins come up there, his, you know, the South Americans come up all the time. It's a great place to have the conferences we'd have because you, you don't need interpreters because they come up and everyone but John Kelly really and his wife spoke Spanish in, in Miami. <laughs> um, it's a, and it's a great city made up of great people, as I say, not just, you know, Venezuelans, Colombians. I mean, it's a great... Because um, back in the day, the, when I was in Panama, Atlanta, yeah, yeah, we went down there Panama, for an yep. area swing and um, I forget who was Southcom at that time. McCaffrey uh, probably? No, before, no. before this is sort of 93, 94 uh-huh. time frame. As an army uh, general, but uh, yeah, it was right there in Panama uh, at that time. Yeah. So it moved, I guess, at some point up to Miami. But but it, there's not a real there's no military threat from down there, you know, to speak of. You you know the, uh, the you know the Cuban military is irrelevant. The Venezuelans are irrelevant. The Nicaraguan military. I mean, they're they're not a threat to the United States. In fact, they're terrible militaries, and they ought to you know they ought to be disbanded or something, save the yeah. money. Um, but so what's the nature of the challenge there? Do you find yourself doing, um, you know, sort of more State Department-esque work? Well, uh, obviously you're not doing bilats with these guys. Uh, the, the thing that uh, I learned very quickly, a couple of things. One, 
the vast majority of, of Latin Americans uh, want to be associated with the United States economically, socially. Um, you know, it's essentially the same culture as ours, a different language, obviously, but um, they want to be friends. They see themselves as in our neighborhood, or we're all in the same neighborhood. It was pointed out to me very quickly. Um, they hate it when you say, make the point that, well, Latin America is our backyard. And I said, well, why does that bother you? And they said, because you own your backyard, your neighbors ah, in a neighborhood. Ah, yes. And it's a small point. Right. But I remember telling Mr. S- Mr. Pence that. And he, you know, I can remember telling Mr. Biden that when I was, uh, when I was at Southcom. Um, so they're good people. Uh, democracy is broken out almost everywhere, except in the socialist countries. Uh, that I've already mentioned, um, and they want to be associated with the United States um, as friends and, and the economics and whatnot. Um, and we, we tend to take them for granted, I think. Um, so I go down there, and um, the first thing was drugs. You know, the the cartels have um, have responded to drug demand in the United States. They're excellent businessmen. And, you know, wasn't 15 or 20 years ago, all of the heroin, as an example, that was consumed in the United States came from Asia. And the cartel said, you know, they were in the business of marijuana for, for decades. They said, well, if you know, Americans want heroin, we'll just give it to them from here. So now the vast majority of heroin produced or consumed in the United States. The poppies are grown in Mexico. Mm. They're harvested, turned into heroin, trafficked up here. Um, same thing, uh, methamphetamines, all used to be made in the United States in small labs. Um, now it's all made in in, uh, in Mexico and trafficked up. And uh, cocaine, our, the cocaine co- uh, made uh, consumed in the United States mostly comes up from Colombia, which is the miracle country down there in terms of what they've undergone for 50 years. Much of it based on a cocaine-fueled U.S. demand uh, insurgency for 50-some years now, I, I see that the FARC is... And it's there was an insurgency based on drugs and money, not on, you know, power to the people and all the rest of the socialist right. bull, bull crap. Um, anyways, uh, in the effect that drugs was having on our country, um, you know, on 9-11, 18 years ago, we had a terrible catastrophe. 3,000 people died. Since then, if you look at narcotics in the same way the South Americans do, that it is a narco-terrorism. We've lost, you know, five, six hundred thousand people from the drugs that come up from the South. The impact we've had, our drug demand generates unlimited profits and is available to the cartels to buy off public officials, murder public officials. Um, you know, you won't go down to that part of the world, Mexico, great country, the three uh, republics, uh, Central American Republic. You won't go down there and read anything about drugs and cartels. If you're a reporter and you write something, you're dead. Um, those that did write it are already dead. Hundreds of police officers, judges, militia people, uh, militia people, press people, um, soldiers, Marines, hundreds die every year fighting the cartels on our behalf. And uh, so if you want to really tee off some of the people down there, when our politicians or our officials up here say, why don't they do more to uh, to uh, stop the production and the flow of drugs? 
And again, their countries, depending on which one it is, are, you know, they're involved in what amount to be insurgencies based on drugs. And what they'll say is, well, John, you know, when I was at DHS and, and when I was in uh, Southcom, well, General, what has America done this week, this month, this year, this decade, to stop the demand for drugs? And the answer to that is nothing, you know, to speak of. Um, I remember uh, I was talking to some people from DHS and they were uh, they, new DHS people. I was in Southcom. I just happened to be in Guatemala. They called and they said, John, why can't those people down, those people down there, you know, they're our neighbors. Why can't those people down there stop this flow of drugs? And, uh, and at the time, the crisis was unaccompanied children. And I said, well, where are you right now? Well, I'm on the, you know, the Mexican-American border. And I said, okay, which way are you looking? Well, I'm looking south. Okay, I'm in Guatemala on the Mexican-Guatemala border. Just happened to be here. I'm looking north. Why don't you come down here? and stand where I am and get the perspective of the Latin American countries, particularly Central America and Mexico, you will see the problem very differently. And uh, so I believe uh, we have somewhat of an obligation to those countries to work with them. Um, and, uh, and they do great. You know, I was, uh, when I was at DHS early on, I flew down and I knew the senior leadership in the, in the uh, Army and the Marines and the, and the Navy down there. And so I flew, we flew into Sinaloa, Acapulco, and then we flew about 100 miles inland on a Mexican helicopter to visit an eradication site. I mean, the Mexicans were stunned I was willing to do this. And, uh, but, I'm, you know, I like boots and I like dirty, muddy boots. So, so we flew in and there were hundreds of uh, their soldiers who were uh, out there um, eradicating poppy, big bonfires, and pulling them out, millions of plants, and pulling them out and burning them. And while the soldiers were doing that, you know, the, the soldiers and Marines were doing that, other units, other soldiers and Marines had defensive positions set up, military defensive positions, like you would see in any war, um, to defend from the cartels. Ambushing them, coming yeah, at them. Right. And so you had these guys that were, were killing themselves, pulling in this, you know, very, very rough mountains and all that kind of thing. But the point is, they're involved uh, in uh, what must have been insurgency against the cartels. And the reason the, the insurgency exists to a large degree is our drug consumption. And it just, you know, maybe I'm a, I'm a little too Hispanic these days, but uh, we bear a certain responsibility for that, yet we're continually pointing fingers at them like they're not doing anything and they're doing a tremendous amount and and both at southcom and and of course later as uh, as a head of dhs you had a big role in immigration policy writ large which to some people it seems that the drug the anti-drug policy and immigration policy have conflated and become so intertwined that the the anti-drug part of it is driving it more than other aspects. It was a very complex issue, I understand. Do you have any thoughts on that, comments, based on your experience? Well, you know, the reality is um, that uh, it it came to me again. uh, We talked about drugs. Um, Where drugs are being produced there, supply and demand. We demand the drugs, they supply the drugs. Right. Um, And it is killing hundreds of people. It has killed probably thousands of people in, in those countries. 
and we give them no credit for the efforts. And because particularly the Latin American or the uh, central, the uh, northern tier countries of Guatemala, El Salvador, and uh, Honduras, because those countries are, are so violent, um, in fact, Honduras, when I was in, in Southcom, was the most violent country on the planet. Uh, President Hernandez there has reduced it from about 90. The, the UN comes out with the statistics. It's per 100, murders per 100,000. They were, I think, something like 90 per 100,000. Wow. Um, you know, the United States is like three per 100,000. Um, he's got it down to, you know, I'm still horrible, but like I think in the 40s per 100,000. So they're trying. But because of the violence, um, the economies have suffered terribly. No one's willing to go down there and open up a, you know, a factory or something like that. And, and because of that, you know, you have the drug demand that causes the violence. The violence uh, causes no infrastructure investment. And that means there's no economic opportunity for the people who pr- would prefer to stay in their own country. Right. So there's no economic opportunity for them. So what do they do? They pay a, a coyote, as they're called, a coyote, a, 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 an agent, all their money. These are poor people to get them to the United States. Um, and so that's, you know, our drug demand, again, and to a large degree, has fueled this movement, this mass movement of people from the Central American. And then because of the peculiarities of our, of our immigration laws that have not been updated and whatnot, um, if they get up until recently, certainly, if they get here, they stay here. They can stay here. Basically, they disappear into the population because of the nature of, of some of our laws. It only take a couple of uh, changes in the law. And what you would see, they, they will very quickly learn that these changes that are very simple will cause them to be processed and sent home pretty quickly. So they're not going to give their life savings to a coyote because they know they're just going to be turned around. Now they know, up until recently, that if they get here, they can stay here, they can disappear. Um, so the deterrent factor is is uh can be very very powerful and those people can can stay and and again i would hope that we the solution to the migration problem in my illegal immigration problem because remember the united states we welcome 1.1 million legal immigrants a year still every year it's the illegal immigration problem um and to a large degree we could fix that by economic opportunity in in those countries but before we do that we have to help them with the violence and the drug demand and all the rest of it. So, um, so you actually have the inter- the interdiction of drugs is separate from the immigration thing. The, the immigrate, I was stunned at how much like the United States Coast Guard does all the heavy lifting down there, to say the least. U.S. Navy, I don't think, set a ship in the Caribbean or the Eastern Pacific forever. So, a typical takedown of drugs. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, cop in in Boston, I said, you know, what's a big drug bust for you? Big drug bust. And he said, you know, if we get a kilo, two. I'm a national hero. <laughs> Coast Guard, on any given takedown, will get certainly no less than two tons, tons of cocaine, and and oftentimes twelve to fifteen tons, depending on what they take down. Uh, the problem is the Coast Guard isn't big enough and can't deploy enough ship uh, cutters down there. But they are, I mean, to, to say the least, the unsung heroes of the interdiction. Um, but you can't interdict your, way, interdict your way out of this. It's got to be interdiction, and it's got to be demand reduction here in the United States. And we've done that. We, we've 
made in, in the United States with well-designed programs, we've caused smoking and tobacco use to almost go away. We have people in seat belts, like at the 99% level or something. When I was growing up, no one was, no one got in seat belts. We know how to do these things. Yeah. Uh, we know how to change behavior. Drunken driving used to be a huge deal. I can remember as a enlisted Marine, we'd go uh, drive to, from North Carolina to Boston, and we'd swing by and buy a case of beer for the ride. You know, <laughs> I know the, nothing about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, thing. That's shocking. But, but, ser- but <laughs> seriously, we we, have, we can change, and we have changed, and we've really never had a comprehensive drug demand reduction um, thing. We've tried some little things, Mrs. Reagan, with the just say no and all of that. But it's harder than that. So the point yeah. is, anyways. Um, but the immigration thing, and again, it's 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 very political. Yep. And generally speaking, it's uh, you talk about social media and all the things with electronics. It's very badly uh, misrepresented. Um, you know, there's there's various types of illegal immigration uh, that goes on. You take um, you take say the unaccompanied children up to year eighteen. When we get a uh, CVP, primarily Customs and Border Protection, tremendous group of men and women, real good people decent people doing a, doing a hard job. When they get an unaccompanied uh, child, by law, not to mention by what's moral and ethical, they have to be taken into custody. There's no option here. They have to be taken into custody. CVP does that. They've got to be turned over to the Health and Human Services people who then provide care for them until Health and Human Services can find an appropriate home in the United States. So what does that mean? Um, the young person is taken in, uh, into custody, turned over to HHS, brought to one of a number of different humanitarian shelters. They're not detention facilities, they're shelters. This is a human rights issue. They're immediately given a medical uh, examination and vaccinated. Most of these people have never seen a doctor in their life. So they're immediately, all of the women, girls, they're girls, all of them, are checked for pregnancy, and they're checked for various uh, sexually transmitted diseases because a huge percentage of them are uh, violated on the way up. Um, They're in the showers, given clean clothes, a a safe place to live, you know, a bed. You know, they're housed with people their gender, their age, and the next day they go to school. And they go to six hours of school, they have uh, religious representation, so if they're Catholics, there's opportunity for that. Evangelicals is a big movement in Latin America now. They have that. If they're other religions, they're supported in that way. And the whole time now, HHS is looking for a place, a suitable place for them to live. Now, a lot of them have kin up here, and they'll come up with an address, but we just don't turn them over to kin because morally we have to turn them over to a, a, a people in a home setting that is decent and won't won't hurt them. So even though it's an uncle or a sister or whatever, HHS has to go to the home, interview the people, see that it's a stable home environment, that the people are not, you know, the prostitutes or drug dealers or whatever. And if it passes the HHS test, then the child will be transported, escorted by plane or driven to the home and turned over. I believe the average length of stay in these shelters is uh, something like 36 or 40 days, a little longer in some cases, because if there's, if there's no family up here, then they have to look for just Americans that will, are willing to take them in. So that's the unaccompanied 
uh, uh, children. The unaccompanied adults, 18 and over, that's a different classification of people. Uh, and then the families are a different classification, uh, again, um, and, and a further classification. There was a lot of, a lot of, in, in my opinion, uh, somewhat justified angst about our outrage about separation of families. You got to remember that decision was not made. Let me say, when I was at DHS, I was not in favor, so it never happened when I was at DHS. Um, when I was the chief of staff, I was not in favor for a lot of different reasons um, of doing it. Um, and what what was the what was the motivation? What was the to do it? Well, you know, there's, there was this constant. We got to get tough with them, right? Um, and uh, Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, um, for you know weeks or months and months and months and months, um, it was his call. Um, and the way it should have happened, if if you know he was under pressure to do it from you know the office, um, he didn't do it for the longest time. What should have happened. Um, was he should have come to me to say, okay, chief, uh, I'm going to do it. I'd say, okay, um, as the chief of staff, we have to get all the players in. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll make some guesstimates here, but if, if he'd have said we were going to do it, the first thing would be, okay, DH, we'd bring DHS, HHS, a lot of people together, the comms people, and say, okay, you know, how do we do this? And I would think, I know DHS, uh, Kirsten Nielsen would have been against it. Uh, for a lot of different reasons. But if we're going to do it, you know, I need four months to prepare and I need another billion dollars because we're going to have to house people that we don't normally house. We're going to separate kids from the family that you're now creating more housing problems, adults and children. Uh, okay, I'm guessing, but she'd want more money and she'd want some time. HHS, Alex Azar was against it, would, be, would have been against it, no doubt. But he'd have asked for more money and more time because he was going to receive the kids. H, uh, DHS would have kept the adults DH in detention facilities, which, again, are well run. And HHS would have gotten the children. Um, and then the comms people would have said, you got to be kidding me. This will be a disaster. Okay, let's talk that through. And then once that staff work is done that you gentlemen know and lady know exactly how to do that, right, then you go to the principal, in this case the president, and say, okay, he's going to do it. Um, you want him to do it. This is these you know these are the pros and cons of doing it. And, and an informed at that point, an informed president would say, "Okay, I want to do X, whether you agree or disagree." Um, that's not what happened. The attorney general surprised me and said that he was going to go to the zero tolerance policy, put it in place right away. Uh, DHS didn't see it coming. HHS didn't see it coming. It was a surprise. I'm not blaming um, the attorney general. I mean, he's not a bad man at all. I just he. He forgot to tell me. Um, and consequently, uh, we were not prepared for separating families, and we were not uh, prepared, certainly, for the, uh, for the hue and cry from the, from the media. Um, my belief is, had we done it through the process, and again, I go back, when I was at DHS, I was not in favor of it. It didn't happen. When I was in the uh, White House, as a, it wasn't my call in, in when I was the uh, chief of staff, but I, I didn't think it was a good idea to do it for, again, a lot of different reasons. I believe if it had put, been put into the system, the staff process, it never would have happened because I don't think the president would. You remember the president kind of, uh, after a couple of weeks of it, told, uh, told uh, the attorney general to stop it. 
Yeah. I think if we'd have gotten, I know if we'd have gotten in there and, and laid all of that out for him, he'd have said, okay, you know, we'll, and again, it goes back to, there's only a couple of laws that need to be changed, which call me crazy. I think that's the United States Congress's job. Yeah. Um, there's only a couple that need to be changed and that would deter these people overwhelmingly, by the way, decent people, not all rapists. By no means are they criminals. But they come in here illegally, and that has to be dealt with. And, you know, the Congress would beat me up when I was at DHS, beat up, beat up uh, Nielsen and people like that, saying, you know, why are you doing this? And the answer is because it's the law. You know, you, cr- you, you created organizations like Homeland, like, uh, well, like Homeland Security, but like uh, CVP to protect the borders. You charted, they're created to protect the borders. And you pass a whole bunch of laws about how they should do it. And so they're doing it. And in fact, for law enforcement, it's illegal not to enforce the law. So now you're saying, why are we doing it? Um, It's because you told us to. And we have no option not to do it. And if you want us to stop, change the law. Um, And certainly your time in legislators has informed your... Your approach to Congress, right? right? You've seen some of that, that stuff. And, you know, I mean, politics being what they are, I never did get used to it. Um, there were many of them that would say, look, I, you know, I, I, know what you, I know what you're doing is the right thing to do down there to try to get control of the border. But this is a great issue for us yeah. to beat up the administration. So I think some of the criticism also, though, wasn't the, the fact that you're enforcing the law that comes is that is. There was some discretion that agencies have in how to enforce the law and how to implement the policies, and I think that there were some. Sure. That was some of them. Yeah. It gets mixed up a little bit. And but but fundamentally, <laughs> if you are deployed on the southwest border, um, and the, your mission is to stop illegal immigration, um, there's not a lot of discretion there, you know. Um, you know, law enforcement does have some discretion. Like with the ICE people, they generally speaking go after criminals to apprehend and deport generally. Um, by law, they could go after any of them, and, and a lot of it's easy pickings, but they don't. They generally go after criminals. Right. Uh, so that they're exercising that discretion. That's right. But when, you, when, when you're standing there on the Rio Grande and there's people coming across in rafts, you, you got <laughs> you right. you to stop them and say, hey, what are you doing? That's right. um, but uh, but here again, as I would tell memory sometimes members of Congress, I'd say, look, I, you know, if you're telling me I can ignore the law, there's all sorts of laws I'd love to ignore. Um, I'd love to stop paying my taxes, as an example. Um, so if you're telling me I can pick and choose the laws, you know, but you can't. And and for the men and women that are in law enforcement, um, you you need to take as much of that off their shoulders as you can because. If they, you know, they're they're criticized now for doing their job, um, and you have to you have to back them, but you have to make their jobs as simple as you can. Right. So um, in, in pop culture, your your DHS and chief of staff stints sort of get m- morphed into one huge blob. I mean, I'd like to segment them to get your thoughts about what it was like. Um, you, you know, you were only at DHS for six months, six right? Months, and, right? And then yeah. then you got the nod as uh, Reese Priebus left um, the the White House and and. Uh, and I, and I don't I, know how these things come down. And I didn't, I didn't like want to cut of your jib, I, and uh, I, I mean, or I you like the, the cut of your jib. I love DHS. Um, 
uh, what I learned about DHS, very similar in terms of outlook and motivation as DOD. Um, as I started to put it, though, DOD fights the away game and Homeland Security fights the home game. But the mentality, and it's very law enforcement, which is, you know, protect the homeland, very similar approach uh, in pride and morale as, as the military. Uh, different job in the sense of how it's executed, laws versus, you know, I don't know, firepower. But the mission's the same, to protect the homeland. And it was, they're a great bunch of men and women. And I thoroughly enjoyed my six months there and did not want to be the chief of staff but the president. So to that point, how, how did that happen? How did you come into the awareness that you were a, a candidate, if not the by-name call, if you will? Yeah. Um, you know, I won't go into the specific, too much detail, but I did have a conversation in May. It's only what, uh, what took over in January in May about something that uh, had happened and uh, in a conversation with some people at the White House who said, you know, this this is a failure of the staff. Um, and we're, you know, on, on the issue at hand. Uh, this shouldn't have happened. And um, and we've let him down. We Not me. I was at DHS, so I could point yeah. fingers. You we you guys have let him down. The Priebus. staff. Priebus. Well, Priebus is a wonderful guy. As the guy. leader of the staff. He's a great guy. Well, sure. And he was working his tail off. But he had some dynamics that he couldn't control. But, um, and he's a friend. I'm having lunch with him next week. Um, but I mentioned to the to the president that um, you know I'd be willing to to kind of be a consultant because I, I know how to be a chief of staff. Yeah. I've been a chief of staff. Long story short, anyways, in in July he called me. So it seemed like a, a solvable problem to you at yeah, that time. Of course, right? All, this all, is just yeah. a, a leadership issue. A couple of people had to be sat down and, and uh, threatened. Okay, you know, either get on board with the program here because you are a member of the White House staff or you're gone. Okay. Um, and I had to do that in a couple of cases when I did take over. But uh, when the president called me and said, I'd like you to be the chief of staff and at the end of July, I said, mm, you know, don't really want to do that. I'm having a great time here at DHS. Da, da, da. And he said, well, you know, why don't you take the weekend to think about it? Or I guess I asked for the weekend to think about it. And, uh, and then he moved before the end of the weekend and said I was going to take the, be the chief of staff. Did this come out via tweet? I forget how yeah, that happened. tweet. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's even worse <laughs> than the General Monday story. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, as I say, you know, anyone listening here that's ever been in the military and has ever seen a staff work or been on a staff would have walked in and done what I did. It's, there's no heroics. And, and we put, you know, some process in, some order, some discipline. And so when, when whatever the issue was doesn't matter, didn't matter, uh, got the right people to start the conversation with the, with the president um, in the Oval Office, typically. So we'd have the White House people that were most knowledgeable on what it say it was an economic issue. They have the economic guys in, and then the next sessions would involve people like uh, you know this, the uh, relevant uh, secretaries uh, of the cabinet, and then certainly uh, other sessions would be you know with members of Congress that felt for and against what might be considered under consideration and then bring in people from say it had something to do with coal energy or something bring in the power generation businessmen and women to give their view um you know it might be you bring in the folks that are the clean energy people and have them give their view on something and we had union leaders come in and say the things that were under consideration how that would affect them 
Um, typical staff stuff, right? And then uh, you sit with the principal and say, okay, you've heard it all now, sir. What do you think? Make you know What decision you want to make? You may agree or disagree with what was being proposed, you know, but uh, at the end of it, you made a decision to run with it. That's the way it's supposed to work. And certainly I, I think that's, I, I know that's what I brought to the job, but a very, very hard job. Um, even in the, in the best of days, it's a hard job. But, I mean, you've, you've worked with some of the, the greats in terms of, uh, at the executive level, Gates, Panetta. What were the pain points? Because in your military mind, as you're talking about a problem to solve, there's a linear path. As you said, you know A, B, C to do, and there's an expectation that that'll happen. Well, this, this enterprise um, is nonlinear, and especially in this current environment, it's, it's nonlinear. But what did you think you got so, done, so. And, and what were you unable to do? You know, well, one of the things, yeah, one of the things that, that uh, started to be, uh, you know, come out in the press where people were mad because I was I was uh, keeping people from seeing the president. I wasn't. Um, but what I was doing was, if you want to go in and talk to him, you have to have a reason to talk to him, and they all did. I mean, they were on the White House staff. Um, but I also didn't want him to just hear one side of the story. So. If you want to go in there and try to convince them to do something, uh, I want to know a that you're going in, and b if it's a if it's an issue that has more than one side to it, one pro more than it has pro and cons, then we have to bring in the people that disagree with you. There were times uh, when we were all in agreement on a topic, and I'd say okay, and I'd point and say, but I want you to argue against it. And that person would say, well, but I agree, I know, but I want him to hear the other side of the argument. I think some people preferred to get in there when I wasn't around so they could, uh, you know, give their side, you know, kind of get what they wanted. Um, you know, and when I'd catch them, I'd make sure they wouldn't, you know, that, that I didn't want them doing that. So but, did you feel like you were, in terms of your military mind and, and as a leader, that this back and forth was yielding results that, you know, you weren't refighting the same fights over and over again and it was Groundhog Day? Yeah. Did you, did you think yeah. that? And, we, and, and again, your... most importantly, we had a principal, uh, this, in this case, President of the United States, and in my past lives, generals and, uh, and uh, secretaries of defense. But we had a principal that was informed on the details, pros and cons. Got you know, I, I remember uh, one time we were going to they were going to put uh, put sanctions on I think the Russian some Russian oligarchs or something and. And it made a lot of sense from the Treasury point of view, but uh, I know Commerce and maybe even State were like, whoa, 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 not now. We're, we're you know, and we wouldn't have known that there were sensitivities had we not in, put a staff process in place. But it's a very, very hard job. And, um, you know, I've, I've, I've been in contact with many of the uh, previous chiefs of staff when I was in the job. And, um, you know, president's personalities are, are varied and... Uh, they all do business differently based on their backgrounds, and um, you know it's it's the job of this of the of the staff to to um, respond to the needs of the principal. Are you glad you did it? Yeah, I mean i I even have real uh, second thoughts about um, leaving because um, I you know I believe when I was there, very confident, I helped the president make, uh, again, fully informed decisions. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I've been gone now since January, uh, and it was a crusher of a job again, but I, in a way, thought, wish I was still there. Not 
for any other reason, I mean, I'd be a babbling idiot by now, but, <laughs> but, um, because, um, you know, I just, we had a, we had a, a, a relationship of candor, you know, like any chief of staff, most of the work is done when the doors closed. Um, um, not passing judgment necessarily, but, you know, I see some of the things and, um, I'm not so sure some of the things were, were well-staffed. Maybe so I'm dancing the, around in here. In the belly of the beast for that, that time, 17 months, there's a lot of people in the country scared that democracy is breaking down. Look at what's happening in Britain now and here. Can you give us some faith that we're okay, that we're going to get back to regular order, as late no. Senator McCain said? This is, this is America. We don't have to worry about that. Okay. So one, one of the things uh, about our, um, I learned – is uh, uh, Americans have not a, not a huge interest day to day what goes on in Washington. You know, when you when you think of this, I'll end with this. When you think of this, when you look at the at the parts of our government that are are, are you know at the top of the uh, opinion polls, if you will, the most admired, respected, considered to be the most effective institution in the U.S. government, the U.S. military. It's been up there since the Reagan years. Um. The presidency, depending on what part and whatnot, you know, the president will be anywhere from, you know, I think at, at one point Mr. Bush was down to 32% at certain times and he was as high as after 9-11, I think he was at 90%. So, but generally speaking, presidents tend to be in the kind of 40 to 55 range and in, in through there. I believe the press is down into the low 20s in terms of respected and admired. And in the United States Congress, which is should be the part of our, because they, they uh, represent the citizens should be well thought of, but I think it's down nine, ten, eleven percent. Um, and an awful lot of Americans look at Washington and just say, you know what, I don't really, you know, I'll vote uh, if they do something that benefits me. I'm happy, and if they don't, but no, I don't. I don't fear for our democracy at all. I mean, we've got. No, we are who we are. We're Americans, it, but it is uh, it is still an experiment. You know, the founders. Acknowledge the fact that we would never stop trying to be a democracy, and we pulled it off now since uh, for for quite a while. But if we uh, if we the thing that'll kill us is if our electorate just kind of gives up and doesn't care, and I, I think we're far from that. General John Kelly, thank you for your decades of service to the nation, both in and out of uniform, and thanks for coming by the Proceedings Podcast today. Thanks, great to be here. Yes, sir. That'll do it for this episode. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you again next time. Presidents Podcast is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman applies electromagnetic maneuver warfare to seamlessly target and combat enemy threats across any domain. By leveraging traditional spectrum-based and next-generation innovations, they're giving your forces a decisive advantage. That's why they're a leader in transformative airborne EW. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com slash EW.